0: Welcome back to the program. From the founding of the Republic and the debates over slavery to the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 took nearly 200 years. With respect to the civil rights issue of our time, from the Stonewall riots in 1969 to the President of the United States supporting same-sex marriage took 43 tumultuous years. During that time, three generations would engage in the struggle. A plague would descend upon and become part of the struggle and public opinion would go from shock and horror to love and acceptance. As the saying goes, oh what a strange trip it's been. My guest Sean Strube, has been a kind of zealot of the gay rights movement. He was there at the key moments with all of the key players. He was on the ramparts, in the living rooms and hospital rooms and courtroom's along the way. He now gives us a memoir of his life and of these times. In his new book, Body Count, Sean Strube is an activist, writer, and executive director of the Ciro Project, which combats the criminalization of people with HIV. It is my pleasure to welcome Sean Strube to the program to talk about Body Counts, a memoir of politics, sex, AIDS, and survival. Sean, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's nice to be with you.
0: Great to have you here. Was there, as you look back on it, a kind of tipping point? Could you have written this same book five years ago or ten years ago? Or is there something in the culture now and our attitudes now that allow the appropriate perspective to look back on this experience?
1: Well, I certainly could not have written it ten years ago. Uh, I think that for a lot of people who've gone through the epidemic, whether they have HIV or not, and survived... um, it required a certain amount of time and distance from the very worst years before we could process what had happened to us and, and write about it in, in a coherent way. Um, so for me, it really, you know, I resisted writing about the epidemic for a while, and then that kind of, it was like a, a switch flipped, and then I began to feel a compulsion. There are fewer and fewer people around who can speak firsthand about what happened in those earliest years in particular. And I think it is uh, incumbent upon us to share our stories, uh, or that history will be lost.
0: The story exists on two levels. There are the events that happened, which you write about, and also the way public perception and attitudes have changed during this period, certainly beginning with your early experience when you first get to Washington it is such a different world today in so many respects.
1: Uh, it is. Um, the public perception has changed quite dramatically uh, with the advent of combination therapy uh, in the mid-90s. Uh, you know, Up until then, the perception of people with HIV or people with AIDS was that they were likely to die uh, quite possibly horrific deaths in the relative near future. Uh, after combination therapy came out and people began to understand that that we would live, um, the perception changed and the stigma increased rather than decreased because we started to be seen and defined by the public health system, those of us with HIV, and by the criminal justice system uh, almost solely through the prism of our virus and our potential to infect others. We were being seen as being around longer, Therefore, around to infect longer, which is what has led to this phenomenon of the criminalization of HIV and a significant increase in stigma. Most people who don't have HIV find that surprising. They don't think that the stigma has gotten worse because their fear of casual contagion has lessened as they've become more educated, and we all have become more educated, about the real routes and risks of transmission. The fear of casual contagion is only one component of stigma stigma as experienced by the people with HIV in terms of marginalization and prejudgment uh, today is worse than ever.
0: One of the things you write about are some of the mistakes that the movement made along the way, even at the height of the epidemic. Talk a little bit about that.
1: I think that, you know, we've been so in touch with the failings of the federal government and the Reagan administration and in New York, certainly the Koch administration and the pharmaceutical industry and the medical establishment. Um And rightfully, so, uh, but we've been a little slower to critically examine our own community's leadership and our own history and how we handled the epidemic. And uh, I don't write about it in a way of you know blaming individuals. I think uh, try to provide some understanding for why the LGBT community responded uh, the way it did, and the extent to which we were despised and under attack and could not help but respond um, through the perspective of the, the oppression and uh, political pushback uh, that we faced. I think if we had not had to deal with that, um, we would have uh, much more effectively handled the epidemic uh, 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 better in those early years.
0: There was also the broader context that you talk about with respect to sign of the exuberance of the time, the grittiness of the time what New York was even like at that point, and how that was very much a part of the whole
1: scene. Well, very much so. I mean, in the years after Stonewall, when uh, the Stonewall riots sort of marked the beginning of the contemporary uh, you know, gay rights movement, uh, and there was this freedom, unlike anything that had happened, that had been possible before, and gay men in particular uh, you know, created a, an incredibly sexually vibrant culture, um, and to a certain extent, promiscuity had become almost synonymous with liberation. And uh, that created a, a, an ecosystem that was incredibly um, efficient at transmitting uh, pathogens. Uh, you know, I view, to a certain extent, the epidemic as a public health consequence of how we as a society had treated Uh, gay people for so long. Uh, You cannot criminalize a part of the population, marginalize it, stigmatize it, treat it so poorly, provide it fewer chances in life than others in society, uh, any part of the population, without ultimately experiencing some kind of public health consequence. And when you look at a broader arc of history and how society has uh, treated gay men, then there's there's, there's there's a logic to it and, and a um, a lesson that that is applicable to all parts of society. When we look at whoever we are treating the worst in society, uh, we know we can see public health consequences. If not today, not too far in the future.
0: One of the things you touch on is a kind of nexus with respect to health care and public health policy, With the feminist movement of the time and the reproductive rights issue and certain aspects of linkage, talk a little about that, Sean.
1: Sure. Very early in the epidemic, a handful of the first people with AIDS who went public uh, from the Bay Area, Dan Turner, Bobby Campbell from New York, Michael Callan, Richard Berkowitz, Bill Lanzaretta, and others, uh, met at a conference in June of 1983, uh, and they wrote a manifesto called The Denver Principles that was really remarkable because it not only outlined a series of rights and responsibilities for people with AIDS, uh, including taking control of the language. It began with, we reject the label victim because we, it implies passivity and defeat. We are only occasionally patients. We are people with AIDS. Uh, it not only was a landmark in the self-empowerment movement for people with AIDS, but it also was the first time in the history of humanity where people who shared a disease organized to assert a right to a political voice. Uh, and that document, the Denver Principles, uh, uh, outlined these self-empowerment ideals. They weren't original concepts. It was largely the women's health movement from the 60s and the 70s uh, codified in this one document around this one health crisis of the epidemic. And in fact, a number of the original authors, of the 12 or 13 people with AIDS who wrote it, uh, very consciously um, uh, were feminists and and really identified in their political worldview was informed uh, by feminism. And it was from that document that we went out and created a whole network of peer-to-peer service delivery organizations. We created our own research organizations, our own buyers clubs, as as in in the popular movie now. Uh, And that was a a truly uh, radical uh, approach uh, that we came to by necessity because the existing institutions of government and health care and so on were not serving us and were content to let us die.
0: Was it a positive or, or a negative aspect, the degree to which it all became so politicized? Because circling back around to what you were saying a little while ago, the degree to which the movement made it a political battle really created a kind of political opposition that continued to amp up the conflict.
1: I don't think that the movements made it a, a, inspired the political opposition. I think the opposition was there. It was you know, deep-seated in society, a bias against gay people. Uh, so I don't think we had any choice uh, but to politicize because uh, uh, we were being left to die. You know, there really was uh, a, a prevailing view uh, at the highest um, levels of, of power in this country that the epidemic was sort of flushing out undesirable segments of society—you know, uh, gay people, people who use drugs, and so on—and so we had no choice but to uh, respond in a political fashion. The you know the, the personal is political uh, uh, message it was never more applicable than in the epidemic. And a lot of us who did have a background in uh, social justice movements and feminism in particular already recognized health care as a highly politicized, um, highly politicized uh, arena.
0: Talk a little bit about how you look back at that period now in terms of, of the health care aspect and really, as you touch on a moment ago, the neglect that was really part of public policy at that point.
1: Right. Well, the you know, the neglect is, is documents that I write in body counts, for example, of the delay in advising physicians, the federal government's delay in advising physicians how to prevent pneumocystis pneumonia, which was the number one killer of people with AIDS in the 1980s, and yet a very inexpensive sulfa drug, uh, uh, you know, generally called Bactrim or Trimeth, uh, was incredibly effective at preventing uh pneumocystis or PCP it was called, Um, but the federal government would not make that recommendation. They wanted a clinical trial done to compare the pill versus a a new delivery mechanism, these breathing machines, um, uh, nebulizers, and it delayed the notification and promotion of that effective treatment uh, by more than two years, and during that interim period between when people with AIDS met with Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Uh, Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and when the uh, guidelines were issued, uh, something like 14,000 people died uh, of pneumocystis, people of age died of pneumocystis. The vast majority of them probably would not have uh, had doctors known to prescribe um, a a Bactrim to, uh, to prevent it. Now, on the other hand, they're also in this, Incredible network of service delivery that we created, all these organizations, and uh, around this new model that was a peer-to-peer model, as opposed to the more traditional benefactor-victim model of service delivery. There's also something quite beautiful and uh, and wonderful in that because we never uh, felt our our community's strengths and uh, uh, more more clearly. It was in many ways showing the very very best face of the. LGBT community, showing how we loved each other, how we cared for each other, showing a side of this community that um, that you know, much of, of society hadn't recognized before.
0: Do you think that the way in which the community responded, in the ways that you're talking about now, that that in some way helped in, in creating acceptance and, and really in in the broader civil rights battle for gay rights that that experience and the way that experience was perceived by the public played a lasting role?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, I think so. But I think probably an even bigger factor, um, I mean, yes, absolutely, because, you know, for the first time we had a lot of people who were not gay getting engaged in the gay community, out of care and concern for their friends, their relatives, their neighbors. And, uh, and sort of seeing this community up close and, and, and all sorts of remarkable things uh, about uh, how we cared for each other and the, the community we had created. Um, uh, but a, a, another factor that is also huge, possibly even a bigger factor, I'm not quite sure how these things can be measured, but the very fact that the epidemic forced uh, a generation of gay men out of the closet, uh, whether they wanted to come out or not. Uh, because they got sick and it became apparent, um, because they got frightened uh, and, uh, uh, and you know, just were no longer going to maintain the closet, uh, or because they, they got angry or, or needed to come out in solidarity. Not just gay men, uh, gay men, lesbians, trans people. Uh, it really sparked an exodus from the closet, and that did more than anything else, because it was consistent in survey research that the uh, the more gay people someone knew, the more accepting they were of gay people, and the people in the country who at that time didn't know anyone, you know, if they were asked, do you know anybody who's homosexual, and, you know, huge numbers would say no, they didn't, of course they did, they just didn't know that they were gay, but as, you know, almost everyone in the country started to know gay people, uh, that uh, that changed the dynamic uh, profoundly
0: talk a little bit about the racial component in this because it was pretty significant particularly in the south
1: sure well and and you know very much still is the a lot of what has been documented and is sort of you know well known about the early years of the epidemic uh... is about the response of middle upper middle class gay white men living in in the gay ghettos in the big urban areas in san francisco and new york and los angeles and For them, uh, not to diminish any experiences of discrimination because they were gay, uh, but in general, the epidemic was really the first time that the society had not served them, the first time they really felt what it was like to be so despised by society. Um, Yet the epidemic in communities of color was a little different because it had to sort of get in line. It had to find its place within a hierarchy of oppressions, of racism, of poverty, of uh, uh, housing insecurity, all sorts of, of other things. And so the organizing and the response to the epidemic in those communities of color was, the uh, popular word now is intersectional. It was it was intertwined with uh, with other uh, pre-existing efforts to address various uh, challenges as opposed to, for a lot of gay white men, it was a singular challenge. Um, now... You know, the other thing uh, is that the epidemic we have today that is uh, so heavily concentrated in communities of color, more so than it has ever been, uh, this is not a surprise. You know, this is, if you, if you track the ratio of uh, new, tra- new infections with uh, people who are white and people who are uh, people of color, uh, from the beginning of the epidemic, it makes almost a perfect X. Meaning, the percentage of people who are white declines; the percentage of people who are colored increases, and uh, you know that is more than anything else the function of uh, of our government response uh, to the epidemic and what we prioritize and um, and how we respond to it.
0: One of the things you talk about is the influence, and again, this relates to the context of the time. The influence that the church had. Talk a little about that.
1: Um, I grew up. In a very Catholic environment, my three sisters' first names are all Mary because of my father's devotion to the Virgin. My mother was orphaned as, a, as an infant and raised by nuns. Uh, and uh, I, at 13, went to a Joseph boarding school and briefly uh, thought I had a calling to be a priest. So I was certainly raised in a, in a very strongly Catholic tradition. And there came a point when I felt. Um, uh, Rejected by the church just as much as I rejected the church, and increasingly, as I became more of an activist, understood the church's role in preventing safer sex education, in obstructing women's right to reproductive freedoms, and saw how uh, how damaging and how deadly that was. And I ended up participating in a very um, demonstration at St. Patrick's Cathedral or we interrupted the Mass, it was actually mostly Catholic or formerly uh, Catholic uh, members of ACT UP who did that. And I think that 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 was in December of 1989, almost 25 years ago. Uh, And I think that coincided with a period uh, of peak influence of the Catholic Church in America. I compare that demonstration, you you know, so famous the Stonewall riots in 1969 that marked the first time that the gay community in New York in New York pushed back against the civil code that was oppressing them and said, we're not going to take this anymore, and fought back against the police, the agents of the state. Uh, Twenty years later, at St. Patrick's Cathedral, was the first time we similarly fought back against the religious code and institutions that oppressed us, and took our redress to them, uh, as um, many of us felt we had a right to do, that even though we were no longer active in the church, we still had a right to take our grievances to the church um, for you know all that it had uh, 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 for for such a big part of our lives that the church had been
0: Talk a little about act up as an organization and and really the envelope that it pushed at the time
1: I always uh, Whenever anybody calls ACT UP an organization, I say, you didn't attend a meeting. Uh, <laughs> it's much more of a, sort of a movement as much as it was an organization. So if this first wave of AIDS advocacy and was really around the self-empowerment ideal, people with AIDS helping each other, creating our own organization, sort of a do-it-yourself model, uh, the second wave of activism was really exemplified by ACT UP, uh, which didn't start until 1987. A lot of people think AIDS activism started with ACT UP, and of course it did not. You know, Randy Schultz's book, And the Band Played On, was written before ACT UP even started. ACT UP had a somewhat different focus. ACT UP was really organizing the um, community in a mass way to exert pressure uh, externally uh, uh, on uh, you know the levers of power at the FDA and the National Institutes of Health and on the pharmaceutical industry, and trying to get them... To do what they should have been doing uh, all along, um, and of course, you know, Act Up became famous for its street theater. Uh, I write about some of our demonstrations uh, in in body counts, including when I and a group of six others, uh, you remember Senator Jesse Helms, the you know the really sure. racist, segregationist, homophobic, you know, sexist uh, member of the Senate from, from North Carolina, um, who was so damaging, and you know, would constantly be proposing these amendments to got HIV prevention efforts and, uh, and demonized uh, uh, people with HIV and LGBT people. When uh, Roberta Ackenberg from San Francisco was nominated to uh, uh, serve in, uh, uh, in a position in the Clinton administration that required Senate confirmation, Helms referred to her on the Senate floor as that damn lesbian. So we decided to go after Helms and created a gigantic condom, 35 feet high, to put over his house in Northern uh, Virginia, and, uh, outside of Washington, two-story brick colonial house, and we had portable generators and blowers, and had the condom made out of a parachute material, and uh, put it over the whole house and inflated it until it was fully tumescent. And um, on the side of it, it said, "Protect yourself from unsafe politics. Helms is more dangerous than the virus." And of course, the police came, and it was a, you know, a, a, a media stunt. Uh, but it also made people laugh, and by extension, it was making them laugh at Helms. And uh, after that point, he never passed another um, uh, piece of legislation uh, that was uh, damaging to people, people with HIV. So we had a sense of humor, uh, and we used all sorts of tactics um, to exert that pressure and bring bring attention to uh, to the epidemic. And ACT UP remains quite lively today today. Um, Uh, It's had a real revival in New York in the last year or so. Uh, so The Philadelphia chapter is very uh, very lively. I think this uh, remains an active chapter in the Bay Area as well.
0: As you look back on all this, as you wrote about it in Body Counts, talk a little bit about the sense of time, because on one level, looking back at it, it seems as if everything happened so quickly that events moved at a kind of breakneck pace. I'm sure, though, that from inside it, during it, it seemed like things were moving painfully slowly.
1: Well, it kind of depends which things. Certainly, uh, the response to the epidemic, you know, trying to mobilize the government, the drug development process, and so on—those things were painfully slow. Um, but on the other hand, in our, sort of our daily lives and losing friends and. Um, uh, uh, you know that was happening so fast i mean you didn't have time to to grieve you know there are often times when i went to two memorial services or funerals on, on the same day in the book i write about you know going to more memorial functions than than birthday parties in those days um and the other thing that that you know i the i too was struck when i was going back and trying to write this song, I say, oh my god this was so much you know it was every day and so many things packed into um, because for some of us, it's all we were doing was just struggling, you know, within the activism, trying to to realize the change that was needed. Um, the other thing that struck me is how incredibly young uh, I was, and mm-hmm. and and all the people I was working with were, you know, these were, you know, people in their twenties for the most part, and uh, we were taking on a burden no one in their twenties should ever have to take on. Uh, in some ways, I. The um, uh, the book dispatches Michael um, um, uh, Michael Harris uh, uh, book uh, dispatches describes written from the battlefield in Vietnam and there's mm-hmm. passage in there that could have been it, so perfectly captured what it felt like um, at times to to those of us you know in, in the 1980s in our in our 20s losing all of our so many of our friends all the time and the intensity. Of that battle and you never knew where the next bomb was going to drop um, yet amidst that horrific loss um, and it's very important to recognize that the epidemic rages on you know it certainly isn't over even though there are effective treatments um, that amidst that horrific loss there also was something um, very beautiful about seeing a community come together and about uh, being felt feeling you know, when I would go to those ACT UP meetings on Monday night in the New York City Gay and Lesbian Community Services Center and surrounded by two or three or four hundred other people who had a similar passion for addressing the epidemic, it was incredibly therapeutic and it, it felt like you were enveloped in, in love, at least for, uh, for the duration of that meeting. And that was important to, uh, to my survival and I believe for many others, uh, knowing that there was this community of people who cared so deeply and were working so hard, even if in the broader societal context we knew that wasn't there.
0: Sean Strube, the book is Body Counts, a memoir of politics, sex, AIDS, and survival. Sean, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll We'll take a break. I'll be right back.